You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for being here with us. On this edition of the podcast, RA's partnership with Black Minds Matter continues. Black Minds Matter is a charity on a mission to connect black individuals and families with free mental health services by professional black therapists. Every month in 2021, we'll celebrate a Black-owned creative electronic music project by hearing their story on the podcast, on the site, and by offering some financial support. You can find the full details of RA's partnership with Black Minds Matter at ra.co forward slash about forward slash community. Andrew Mensah is back on the exchange. This time, Andrew spoke to someone he's worked closely with. A real legend in the eyes of London's community of emerging artists, Tony Wachiku. If you've got something that's really special, you should try and maintain it, particularly when it comes to black music or black culture. It's complicated enough, you know, navigating this space as people of colour. To me, from a really early age, this idea of maintaining and understanding one's ego and how you can still have an ego, but the ego not be a disruptive force in what you're doing has been really important to me. Tony set up CDR, which stands for Create, Define, Release, nearly 20 years ago. CDR is best known as an event where producers have the chance to try out their works in progress on a club sound system, as the fledgling tracks are carefully curated and weaved together by Tony throughout the night. Tony is, of course, a widely respected musician in his own right, having been part of the trip-hop band Attica Blues, as well as being a prolific producer, DJ, lecturer and music consultant. In this conversation, you'll hear Tony's thoughts on the role of record labels when it comes to the mental health of the artists they work with, the importance of independence and ownership, and some insight into how the CDR community grew. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Tony Wachiku and Andrew Mensah on RA's Exchange. Welcome. Thanks for joining me, Tony. My pleasure. My pleasure. First of all, how was your weekend? How was your bank holiday? Yeah, well, bank holiday was okay. Pretty chill. Um, you know, well, chill in the sense that all I did was really just made time to watch documentaries and just chill. You know, had Obi had a friend over, which was, um, he had a sleepover, which was a bit, one. well, it was good to see him first and foremost, but as you can imagine, it was very noisy. Mm-hmm. And um, Obi has um, really got into music, as in beyond, you know, we bought him some vinyl for his birthday so he's just been <laughs> hammering xxs tentacion all weekend wow um which is um which is great you know which is great but um yeah it's like i feel like that sudden turn the music down i sound like my my parents do you know what i mean it's quite, <laughs> it's quite weird it's quite weird yeah, so you bought him the rec- you bought him the record yes yeah yeah i mean he's got it on digital but you know he wants to 
you know, he wants to own some vinyl because we've got turntables here. So he just also wants to participate in the experience, which is great, actually, because he can really appreciate the fact that there's a sleeve and there's liner notes and all these kind of things that you obviously don't have with digital experiences. So, yeah, it's yeah. good that he appreciates that. Wow. OK, um, that's that is great. It's so funny that he's uh, he's really getting into music um, a little bit more. I mean, I would say probably it's it's something that you expected or something that you wanted i mean I, i'm not sure how much how much would you say you're consciously sort of like trying to influence him with the with your career that's a really good question um i mean with my eldest um you know he i mean he's he's a proper music head and mm -hmm. you know i mean he once he saw once he really re realized what was on the wall like you know we've got a wall of vinyl here in the house and um you know every so often i dip into you know, we've got some turntables and every so often we make a thing of going through the records and just playing them, right? So when he kind of realised what was on the wall and, you know, you've got this format that's, you know, much more physical and much more... Um, it's a different experience to just, you know, to streaming services. You know, he really, really got into it and, um, you know, started Brian Records for himself. And it's almost like the fact that he was, you know, there's a whole wonderful process of find the records, obviously finding what he likes. and But then also when he was old enough, he was going to shops purposely to buy records, you know, and obviously that's something I've grown up with, but for him, it was a really, you know, a journey of self-discovery, you know, and, you know, going to the record shops in the West End, Sister Ray, you know, going to Soul Jazz or whatever on his own terms, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that was great. And also something that was quite novel, you know, compared to his friends who are all, obviously just you know spot streaming service heads heads um, um and then for him as well just discovering that there's, there's a whole physicality to it that he that's very much part of his life he bought himself a turntable and speakers and all these kind of things and it's great it's great to see you know so it's great that he's had opportunity to see the value of physical product and it's obviously passed on to his younger brother you know and the fact that you own this vinyl this physical um 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 you know, artifact that it's yours, you know, um, and you take pride in it, you know, in a way that you don't necessarily take pride in it if it was a, um, a digital artifact on a laptop or on a device, you know, it's something that's, yeah, it's great. And it's also a real form of identity, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, you know, for all of us growing up, you know, music is one of the first things that kind of differentiates us, well, brings us together in terms of finding like-minded human beings who share similar interests. Mm -hmm. But it's also really, it's one, probably one of the first things that really defines us as a human being growing up is our taste in music that's different from our parents, that's different from, you know, other siblings, you know. And it's, um yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's really good to see it played out with my, my, my young, my sons, you know. Hmm that's really nice um i'd say yeah that that definitely rings true of myself as well i think that i think my introduction to music or my my growing sort of love for music as uh as a pastime but then also some when it became a bit more than that i think initially it was all it was all way more subconscious than i than i'd actually uh, realize and I think that's probably the way with everything like you suddenly realize as you as you gain more sort of like of your own um 
opinion and form your own way of thinking about the world and your own viewpoint on the world you suddenly realize like there's been this like whole process of like permeation and, and osmosis as you've been growing up all these things mm. you've been listening to kind of been helping shape what it is that you relate to and from there you, you then are able to kind of form your, your own identity as you say um cool that make that i guess that kind of like leads us quite well onto the topic of cdr mm-hmm. um so first of all can you tell us about a bit about cdr just for those people who might be a bit unaware of what it is in your own words sure thing so um cdr um is a you know create divine release is um it's an organization um, um but it has its roots in um cl- a club space um it started off as a knee-jerk reaction to some of my experiences as an artist as a producer in the music industry um my experiences were you know i was um, in a band attica blues um who were signed initially to moax and then to higher ground which was a subsidiary of sony records um and you know when you you know and this is in the days of you know major industry you know before the internet you know, um, where being on a major label was a big thing, you know, because for an independent artist, it basically meant that you were in, you know, potentially you had the resources to take your career or to take your music to another level. So, you know, um, being signed to a to a bigger label, you know, um, particularly a label like Sony at the time, because Sony were, um, you know, in the day, in, in those days, it was like, it was really interesting because, the industry was full of obviously some amazing independent labels, but equally you had major labels who were invested in smaller independent labels or they'll create a smaller imprint within this bigger machine. So the idea is that these smaller labels were doing what, uh, say, an independent label could do. But if, if projects were to to gain traction or to gain notoriety, they had the obviously the backing to kind of propel these artists to you know with the resources that they had that was a thinking and that was our thinking for being on a label um like higher ground and they had bands like left field and dj rap and a few other people um and um you know so so for us you know what was potentially a fantastic situation ended up being quite frustrating because when our second late album came out um you know the, the this the thinking behind being on a label like that, we got the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. Basically meaning that, you know, you've got potential, but we don't see the potential your way, you know. So essentially we got dropped. Um, and, you know, you know, for those people who don't know what being dropped means, you know, it basically means that the label, you know, you know, don't see, um, they don't see potentially what you're doing essentially. So they let you go. Um, and, you know, for an artist who goes through that, you know, or a, late, or, a, or a band, you know, in some respects, it's humiliating because it basically says that on one hand, you know, a few months ago or a year ago, they're really into what you're doing and then they're not into what you're doing, you know, for whatever mm. reason. Mm-hmm. So so you have to deal with that as a human being, you know, um, and the first thing that comes to mind for you is that, you know, you're not good enough or you're, you know, on one hand, they think you're good based on your demos or how you perform live. And then you go through this process of making a record. And after making a record, you know, change their minds. You know, you're immediately going to think that, okay, well, this body of work I created, they're not into, you know, or they don't see it the same way as, as us, you know. So 
so so so so it's disappointing. And the first thing you do is internalize those feelings when you go through that process. So for me, you know, um, it you know, I made a decision first and foremost that you know I wouldn't let any body, any organization dictate what how I shape my music. You know, from that day on, you know, um, and for me, first of all, I I also felt it was really important to create a space where that wasn't an issue, you know, where artists, producers, music makers could have a platform to learn and grow in a safe environment without being tainted by the industry, without Mm. being tainted by journalists, essentially. Um, So, um, so, so essentially what I did was I, and also at that time, you know, me as a human being, you know, I'd been in a band where I was the kind of technical person in the band, um, you know, and, um, you know, I started DJing a lot more and started presenting my what I was working on as a DJ. You know, I wasn't in the band. I was, you know, I did a lot of production work and obviously put the band together and worked on that side of things. I wasn't DJing as much when, when we were a band member, but, you know, the tail end of it, I DJed more. Um, because opportunities became pre- presented themselves more, and you know when you're in a band for so long, and then when suddenly you're you you get to DJ on your own, you know, or 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 with Charlie, who is the other member, of Charlie Dark in in the band, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of it's a different it's a different experience being asked to DJ for a couple of hours in Zurich, you know, or in Italy, you know, as opposed to being a band which has, you know, lots of other um, uh, prerequisites, you know, you know touring a band rehearsals equipment and all this kind of stuff and DJing was easy compared to playing live you know but not only was it easier in terms of the logistics of it but it also meant that as in the within a DJ set you obviously can play a selection of music and for me personally it was a really good opportunity to kind of road test stuff on um, road test tracks that I was working or road test just road test stuff right and um mm-hmm. And for me, what was really interesting is that, you know, in my DJ set, I could obviously fling in loads of things I was working on and the, the dance floor, you know, but by and large, every so often the flunk, but <laughs> by and large, I'd maintain the dance floor, right? Because, and then for me, it was really interesting that, you know, people, you know, I've maintained the dance floor and the, and the audience, you know, were just consuming what I was was presenting, right? So, so that got me thinking about actually having, um, and you know having a platform for this music that is being developed you know because from an audience point of view of course there are tracks they're going to be familiar with at some point you're right but equally there's lots of music that is new to them you're right and what does new mean you know new to me is different to 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 to, to other people so it's, it's a you know it's a really interesting concept what new means or what fresh means so um so i immediately wanted to create a, an event that really give an opportunity to present work in progress and the fact that as um as a producer you know you know as a music maker you know we're on this quest to not only make make music and release it but also to refine our skills and you know and and get feedback you know and um and for me it was really interesting to present to have an opportunity to create a space for that but also mm. at the same time, you know, we ha- you know, formats were changing. You know, traditionally as a DJ, you know, if you wanted to play new music before the advent of the CDR, you know, you obviously either made dub plates, you know, um, and, you know, that 
can be quite expensive. You know, if you're cutting, you know, um, you know, t 20 dub plates, that's a, you know, that's, that can be, if it's something you have to do, something you have to do. And obviously the, the roots of black music is, is obviously the dub plate is a really important aspect of that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but what was interesting for me was that, you know, particularly with CDRs, you know, recordable CDs, it meant that you could, um, you know, basically have the tracks that you make in your computer and then burn them off and then obviously play those on CDJs. You know, it feels like whatever now, but you know, it was a big deal in the, you know, um, late 90s, early 2000s to be able to take music that you'd made on your at home on your computer and to be able to, you know, basically fast track, fast track that to the dance floor, you know. Before CDs, of course, you had cassettes, but, you know, cassettes being analogue have their own um, idiosyncrasies. Um, but then, of course, you could obviously make dub plates, but again, dub plates is a physical thing. You've got to physically go somewhere to make a dub plate. Dub plates have got a shelf life of, mm. you, know, um, um, you know, but there's obviously great appeal for having dub plates. They've got particular sound and aesthetic to them, of course. But, you know, CDs were dirt cheap you know they're pennies you know and and you know if you were burning wavs you could burn up to 10 tracks but if you burnt them as mp3s you could have triple that right do you know what i mean so suddenly you could your your music or your ideas have become portable you know and um and that for me was really really interesting you know this idea that you know artists producers can take ownership of your destiny you know there are you know, you can literally go from your computer to the dance floor, you mm. know, seamlessly without gatekeepers, without labels, without, you know, people second guessing your music, you know. And that's yeah. the thing that really appealed to me. Um, so I, you know, uh, with with this, so that's where NACDR came from, you know, the, this idea of, you know, it's an acronym for the optical medium. But for me, what it what it really stood for is this idea that, you know, you could create something, you know, on your own with, within your, the realms of your capability. You can define it as in by obviously making it to a particular kind of state. Um, and then you could obviously release it to the world, you know, just um, on your own terms um, yeah. and and see what happens, you know. And, and for me, yeah. yeah, that's basically so. So that's the, the, the premise of it. It started off at a club called The Embassy which is a small club on the Essex Road in Islington. Um, it was a downstairs basement. It held maybe, I don't know, 100 people. Um, and I'll never forget the first session because, um, you know, I was pretty, I had no idea what to expect apart from, you know, I printed up a few flyers um, and the first flyers I made were, you know, this, a square flyer, the same size as a CD case. And um, and I, you know, bought a bunch of CDs, made a blank CD, and we just basically, where people used to post flyers into record shops and stuff, we we posted these um, flyers in a plastic sleeve and a blank CD, inviting people to use that CD to burn a track, you know. Um, <laughs> um, and the first Never. session we did at uh, Embassy was, um, yeah, we had maybe, I don't know, 60 people um, at the first session, um, but uh, I it was really special because um first and foremost for me 
um, you know, it was like mates of mates of mates of mates. So in the room, we had this community of people who were friends, either, you know, like-minded producer heads that we knew from Clubland or from labels that we had affiliations with, you know, club promoters that we talked to, you know, and their mates. And then, you know, people's partners came along. And, and I remember preparing for the night. And usually, you know, if you DJ, you've got your record box and your, you know, you've got your, you, you, you strategize, right? So you've got new tracks that you want to drop. You've got classics that you drop. You've got your first aid tunes in there. And you're basically got this box that you're going to take people on, on for a journey for two, you know, for whatever hour, two hours, whatever your set is, right? Um, but for me, it was, it was obviously I just burnt four tracks that I was working on. And that, that was it, right? So, so I went to the event where the DJ, the selection was being brought to me, you know? So, so the idea is that people come to a session, you bring the track that you're working on, on a CD, and you present it at the DJ booth, right? You know, and that happens the early part of the night. So as the night progresses, that pile stop, you know, it becomes bigger. So that pile of CDs is the DJ set, right? And, the, the, you know, for most people, that would be really daunting because, you you know, the whole point of DJing is be, knowing what your music is and being able to have the confidence in taking people on this journey that music you're familiar with, right? Yeah. Whereas CDI was the opposite. You know, I trusted the people in the room in terms of the aesthetic, right? And um, I was confident that the music would have a particular flavor because it was from an extension of people that I knew right um but again I have no idea where that would go because depending on how word gets out or what people are into you know there was no there was no um genre restrictions do you know what I mean I think for me it was the way the events were communicate are communicated and how the how the you know, the people that are invited and their friends and that network of people and that thinking is what shaped the playlist, right? Yeah. So so for me, I'll never forget the first event where I was literally, you know, queuing up tracks, just trying to understand what was there and, and assembling them into some kind of flow, you know, and the flow initially was like temp mood, right? So you'd start off with tracks that are kind of, you know, kind of down tempo and then kind of move it up the scale right you know that's you know that's one approach to DJing I guess mm -hmm. um and it was brilliant because for me uh, uh, something that would be usually scary was actually really exciting because you know we were all discovering this new music in this window of time you know this playlist is unique to that event that time that window of opportunity never to be replicated again unless it's recorded right and that state of music you know, so for example, the track that I brought down, that's a version, right? You know, and it may change, it may not. Who knows? You know, a track that, I don't know, you know, another producer brought down, it may be the same, it may not. Who knows? You know, but so for that window of time, there's this music that's playing that's this state in history, you know, and that was really powerful to feel from that first session onwards, right? Mm, you know, yeah. You know, I think that is i'm just gonna stop you there because there's so much in there that i kind of want to uh mm. kind of want to touch on but that's uh 
that's a great summation <laughs> of what CDR is and, and, and then some. But uh, I mean, there's so many things you kind of touched on in there as well that um, I think will be really, really interesting um, to kind of like dig into a little bit more. But you kind of, um, where should we start? I guess, I think what would be interesting for me is kind of talking first about like the, I guess your journey between from like going into music up to the point of like reaching CDR. So I want to take it back slightly first. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember, as we're talking about like, I guess like being of a young age and kind of realizing um, our own sort of like uh, vocabulary when it comes to music um, or our, our own identity. Do you remember when it was that you really truly realized you had like a passion for music and it was more than just something that you thought was cool or that would give you kudos and that it's something you want to actually take on professionally? Yes. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, um, my parents are Nigerian. Mm -hmm. um, and those of us who are of African descent um, and Caribbean, of course, but, you know, black parents, particularly Nigerian parents, you know, the idea of a, being a musician is something that's a way, way low down in priority. You know, mm -hmm. it's yeah. all about a profession. You know, you are you are raising children who are going to be the doctors and lawyers and engineers of the world, yeah. right? So, so the so, um, so the fact that I was passionate about music, you know, I I knew I was in, interested in music from the age of ten or eleven. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I I loved not just loved music. Obviously, I grew up with pop music, but equally in my house. You know, we grew up with a wonderful mix of The Messiah on a Sunday, Jim Reeves, Fela Kuti and Soul Records and ABBA Records, you know. And I remember just being really not only interested in the in the in the in the song, but actually the detail, like what makes why do drums on a fellow record sound a particular way or why do you know what 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 makes up the music? I just remember being really curious about it at, at, a, at a young age. Um, this is at the age of 10? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, because, you know, for me, I was just really curious to... I was just really curious about sound, you know, and mm. how, you know, what makes make, what makes a record sound a particular kind of way. I mean, I didn't know what I was listening to. Um, you know, I didn't have any, you know, because of my background, you know, my parents didn't prioritise piano lessons or violin lessons or whatever, do you know what I mean? So, so when I, you know... It, I, I really began to take ownership of my listening um, from the age of 13 when I got a paper round and I was able to, you know, basically spend money, you know, use my own money to buy things. So I immediately started buying records. Um, and, um, you know, at that time, you know, um, it was the days of kind of early hip hop, early electro funk, as it used to be called. Um, and I used to go to Groove Records in Soho, which was a fantastic independent record shop. I mean, they used to get imports fresh um, from the US on Sundays or Saturdays. Mm. So I used to go in on Sundays um, and, you know, a, a lot of my early records like, you know, Planet Rock and Narfish, The Soul, you know, Electric Kingdom, you know, Nucleus Records, you know, I was buying a lot of that music um, because I was obsessed by it, it, electronic music by then, you know, um, which also led me to you know, being into records like by Craftwork and, and also British bands at the time, you know, new new wave bands like Human League and OMD, 
um, you know, basically any Depeche Mode, any bands that use synthesizers, you know, once I got into understanding what I like, you know, I liked, you know, I liked different kinds of music growing up, but there was something about digital, well, synthesis-based music that Mm -hmm. I was really obsessed by. I think the thing that, you know, looking back, I think the thing that really got me excited about this music was, you know, again, I felt at a bit of a disadvantage growing up because my, you know, being a musician, you know, you know, was bad, you know, in, in, in a Nigerian household, right? Mm-hmm. I think something about digital, the fact that it used computers, you know, which kind of lent itself to engineering-ish, you know, kind of that was, <laughs> I could justify being into computer-based music because there was a skill attached to something that's remotely attached to engineering, right? Yeah. Um, um, and that I could I could kind of wing it with my parents because um, and also I was into computers at time as well I was into programming, you know I bought myself a Sinclair Spectrum and 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 the cam- you know compute I was into computing anyway, so for me in my mind it was all this kind of like digital stuff that my in my parents could see I was nerding away making programs and they thought oh everyone thought you know computers were the future so it's not engineering but it kind of like engineering you know so we'll li- we'll leave them alone. And um, so, yeah, so my early teens was, you know, was, I was very independent, you know, buying my own records, you know, um, you know, into computers um, and, you know, um, I'm really discovering this world of, 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 of synthesis based music. Um, and the fact on what in the pop world, it was British bands, like a new wave bands, as I mentioned, um, but also bands like Kraftwerk. Um, but more excitingly, there was these bands in the US that were making this, you know, otherworldly music that was really excited, which started off with, you know, drum machine led records, like I said, like, you know, the now, you know, Electric Kingdom and you know, bands by Nucleus, Electric Kingdom, but then obviously segued into music that was rooted in, um, you know, using things like the SB12, um, you know, records on Cold Chillin', um, records, um, you know, produced by Marley Mole, you know, DJ Premier, you know, these kind of people, the kind of like sample-based music, um, you know, mm-hmm. early Run DMC, you know, and that took me like, that. Re- I really got into that world of, yeah, again, because it felt possible, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, it really kind of, um, you know, and because, again, because I was dictating what I was listening to, what I was discovering, you know, I was kind of propelled and it also felt doable, you know, it felt doable using this music that was digital, you know, um, not that, you know, playing in a funk band isn't doable, but for me, it felt a lot more doable. I could process, you know, a, a sequence with an 808 drum machine pattern. Do you know what I mean? I could, I could understand that, do you know what I mean? You yeah. know, even though I didn't have the equipment, it made complete sense to me um you know um um but at the same time i also was inspired by you know brit jack brit, brit funk at the same time you know people particularly people like herbie hancock who herbie hancock was immensely influential because you know he's an artist that has always embraced technology whether it's using a phaser pedal on uh, fender roads or using you know turntablism in rocket records you know he was always someone that really pioneered using technology but then also a lot of his records, particularly records like Thrust, if you turn the back of Thrust, you got him sitting there with a whole kind of 
map of analog synthesizers. You've got, you know, Oberheim's, Moogs, Fender Rose, Clavinets. That was like a map of what was possible in terms of instrumentation. So, so, so for me, you know, I knew that you know, the music I was enjoying was you know, black music, you know, rooted in, in technology. Um, and you know, obviously rooted in, in in jazz in terms of the feel and the the progressions, um, but that manifests itself, and that, of course that manifests itself in all you know a lot of digital music I was listening to. Um, but but the roots of it, the feeling of it, the soul of it was definitely the roots in kind of you know black music, um, jazz roots in jazz and and blues, but manifested through technology. So that kind of took me into. Um, you know, so that was my teens, just basically buying records, um, you know, um, really discovering how the role that technology plays in, in music, whether it's pop yeah. music, whether it's, you know, these imports that I was buying. And obviously British music at the time, there's some really amazing British records at the time that, you know, that were equally as influential. Mm-hmm. So and at what point was it that you um, formed the band? So, um, so before the band thing, um, you know, I went to university, um, mm-hmm. and at university, you know, I really, you know, my whole music making and I guess the beginnings of my kind of entrepreneurial w- way of thinking really propelled, you know, I started doing club nights, you know, focusing on, you know, you know, playing the music I, I grew up with, you know, yeah. but also at the time there was a really good explosion in, you know, D- Detroit you know, Chicago house and, and, um, you know, all the kind of dance, you know, the emergence of the kind of, you know, dance scene. And I was really stuck in that scene, you know, from a record buying and DJing perspective, but also, you know, parallel to that was the whole acid jazz scene, you know, which, which to me was, you know, essentially, um, you know, a, 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 a form of jazz that incorporated technology, you know, break beats, loops, these kind of things. And, and and that was equally as exciting for me. Um, so these kind of things. So after university, you know, I, I um, you know, armed with this, you know, loads of bunch of records. I'd bought a couple of synthesizers by then, made a couple of, you know, demos, um, and um, and also, you know, I because I, re- I did a de- degree in computers, I kind of had a bit of a technical background in this kind of stuff as well, right? Mm. So um, so. So that made the parents happy. Yeah, <laughs> most definitely. That <laughs> that that justified the the wad of records I had in my bedroom at the time. Do you know what I mean? Um, as well as a couple of you know um, computers or whatever. Um, but yeah, that kept definitely kept them happy for sure. You know, and um, and then you know I worked as a programmer for a while. Really hated it because it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I loved the idea of coding, but the environment it wasn't you know my my idea of being creative so i got a job in a shop called turnkey um which mm-hmm. was a brilliant music shop in um um in west in london in the west in the west end yeah. um they had two that soho sound house which was the one they had this when they opened and that was a real mecca growing up you know we'd go to you know on trips when you go up west <laughs> up the west end you know, people would go to clothes shops or whatever. I'll just go turn uh, Soho Soundhouse and see what synthesizer they've got on. You know, play these synth- put headphones on, and you know, you couldn't afford anything in there, but you'd just style it out <laughs> for hours on end, mm, just playing these drum mind. machines and synths. Um, but I managed to work at Turnkey. You know, they'd moved to Charing Cross Road, bigger store, 
you know, um, and I worked there for a while. And that, for me, was brilliant. Um, the money was, the, you know, the wage was very poor, but, you know, you were in this world of, of synthesizers and, you know, like-minded people. And you had, you know, the staff were interesting because you had people like me who were just really into music. And, of course, it's a job and you've got to sell stuff. But, you know, I had a bit of a technical background and when customers come in, you, you want to know them. And then obviously on one hand, you have people who are just salesmen. That's all about just reaching those margins and getting their bonus at the end of the week or month or whatever it was. Um, and for me, it was a real schooling because I met some really amazing musicians. And because it was in Soho, you had the Soho music industry, you know, nearby. So you had labels like Sony, um, you know, a whole bunch of labels and, you know, and, and obviously a lot of production companies there. So we'd get people who typically would get signed and you'd go to a shop to, you've got an advance, you need a new drum machine or a four track or a microphone or whatever. And I was particularly interested in people that look like me coming into the store. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You know, and, and, you know, I, 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 I developed a lot of friendships with artists who look like me and, had a similar outlook on life as me um and you know as well as you know selling them stuff but it was more like you know they'll they'll come in and check in every so often how their you know deal was going oh i just got signed to east west or i just got signed to you know i don't know mute records or whatever or just got signed to virgin whoever and you know and then you know and you'd get to see how they grow as artists Oh, and wow. you know, and I'd help them out. You know, if they've got you know, because by then my speciality was um, I was the go-to sample guy. You know, so mm. I knew you know I knew about sampling. I knew about using the S nine fifty or S one thousand or whatever or anything to do with digital sampling. I was the person, and also in terms of sequencing. So we're talking the days of C Lab Creator, C Lab Notator, um, and I that was my thing because it. It, you know, I studied it, right? You know, and also mm -hmm. something I was obs obsessed about. So, so I got to, to be known as the the computer guy in the store. Um, and a lot of the time, with some customers, you'd go and help them out. You know, when they buy some equip equipment, they might buy like a four track, a computer, a sampler, and a, an M one or something. And then, you know, as part of the service, you'd go and help them set it up. You know, so I did that a few times with people. Um, and um, from there. Um, I met um, uh, a guy called Michael Riley, who was in this band Steel Pulse for years. And then from there, he, he set up the Reggae Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, and I set up his equipment. And, and then immediately he kind of asked me, hey, I'm doing this album. Do you want to help out with the drums? I was like, okay. you know. And it turned out to be a remix album for Bob Marley um, wow. that they were doing. And, um, and I'd never been... Philharmonic. In... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... I worked on that project and because, you know, I'd had a hip hop, you know, I'd had this kind of electronic background, you know, by then I was, you know, I was really into, you know, breaks and the whole aesthetic of, of, of sample based hip hop. You know, we'd had, obviously we'd had the golden era. So we'd had the days of trial Court quest and, you know, and Della soul. And, you know, we'd had all that stuff. And not only did I obviously really knew how to make those records, but I was, I knew the breaks because I was just, I lived the culture. So, mm -hmm. and definitely by the early nineties, you know, that the, using loops and breaks had permeated into pop music. Right. Um, so I was, you know, and I was in a kind of a right place at the right time. I knew how to use the technology. I knew, I knew the breaks. Um, and, you know, I worked with Michael for a few years and, and for me, that was a really fantastic, a development in my 
career because not only did I work with someone who got it, you know, who who got what I was, you know, what my skills were, um, but he also um, saw the potential of using, you know, loops and breaks and these kind of artifact sample artifacts within the mu- his hit the music that he was producing. So and also I got to see how the industry works from that from a from a from a maker's point of view. The fact that for some projects, you know, record companies give you a, a bit of money, you've got these masters to work with, and you've got a period of time in these studios to basically put the work together, right? Yeah. And it, and it was at a time when you know budget budgets were much bigger, and there was a much bigger ecosystem of, of studios. So I got to work in some amazing studios, studios like Metropolis. Um, which was a fantastic studio, you know, studio suite in um, Chiswick. Um, there was um, Metropolis Empire, um, you know, they had a bunch of studios across London, Razor Studios, which was a fantastic studio in Wandsworth. And I really got to see, you know, my role was I'd have, the, I'd have a sampler, uh, you know, M1, MPC, you know, a bunch of, you know, all digital stuff. And my job was the, the Beats person. But I got to work with engineers. I got I saw the ecosystem, how you make records with a team of people mm. in this fantastic setting. You know, the role of the engineer, the role of the producer, role of the assistant, role of the musicians coming in and out, and the role that I had to play. You know, what, what happens with my loops and breaks and samples once it's on tape and it's crafted by the, the engineer. I really soaked it all in. I really had such an inspiring time in, in you know at that top period in my life you know and I could see how you can take a raw sample and with you know some effects and positioning in a track you can make it otherworldly do you know what I mean or when you've got a whole bunch of strings um and you know you hear it multi-tracked and layered with other instruments and blended with other you know sources and then coming you know coming with this world of sound it's just for me, I, that just really, really, really inspired me. Mm. Um, and I took this experience um, to to Attica, you know, Attica Blues, because I've been in a fantastic position where I've worked in big studios. I know what it's like to to work with musicians. Um, um, and I was able to take these experiences and and bring them to Attica, you know, and and... And at the time with Attica, particularly in the early days, it was brilliant because, you know, you'd, we'd had this whole wave of, you know, basically heads who'd grown up with hip hop and ele- electronic music, you know, and and the things, you know, went from, you know, on the dance floor, things went from, you know, 125 or whatever to 97, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean, BPM. And, and, you know, when you take things down in tempo, you know, things become very, can become very spatial and minimal and, you know, your focus is on the atmospheres, right? You know, so mm-hmm. I've made that really inspired me because on a very basic level, if you take a break and, you know, tune it down five semitones or 12 semitones, it sounds amazing. <laughs> any drum sound amazing you know a few semitones down and for me that was almost like I was a pig in I was a pig in do you know because I was I just love transposing samples and being able to you know be in a band where you could explore beats and sampling and digital music forms you know with vocals with turntablism you know and 
you know, bring our take on it as, as you know, African kids growing up in London. Um, you know, it was a fantastic time. Um, and it was, you know, particularly with the first record, it was a really good way of us to kind of develop, for me, a really good way of contextualising all these things that I grew up with. You know, you know, being very passionate about music from a young age, being very passionate about electronic music, um, you know, um, you know, rooted in jazz, um, but without being a player. Do you know what I mean? You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and seeing the power of digital, the power of digital, you know, how sound is transformed once it becomes digital, what the potential of that is, um, and living it, you know, as someone in, in Attica at the time, and being able to, you know, work with, you know, like-minded human beings, Charlie and Robert. Um, and and be on a label where you know we could explore and experiment, you know, um, and you know, benign to me, we were riding this crest of the wave, you know. And at the time, obviously, it was we had obviously great music around at that time, whether it was you know Massive Attack or Portishead or you know any bands that kind of embraced you know the hip hop aesthetic, whether it's using breaks or using the production aesthetic or the, the the mood and texture the focus on drums you know the focus on breaks you know it's really 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 exciting time and um and for me it was like a really you know interesting journey of discovery you know yeah i love that um i think that something that you when you were talking what made me think about uh how natural it seems that your journey i guess between well from a young age up to, uh, well in the industry up until like cdr is just like this sense of i guess camaraderie and like you've always from early on had a lot of people who you've had a connection with um in the music and in the technical in the detail um and it feels like actually like where what cdr has become and particularly what it start, started out as the the, the flagships of open open CDR now, which you were explaining earlier, um, is very much embodies this like sense of community and very much is a continuation of like that that journey for you. Um Yeah. I'll also add jump in, you know, for me, um at a young age, um so t- <laughs> at young age I, I was always like for example when I used to go um, there were a couple of record shops in uh, the West End. Uh, one was on this alleyway just near Hitman Records. Um, those of you who remember where Hitman Records was, there, there was a kind of a secondhand sh- straw store that sold loads, you know, different kinds of music. And there, there used to be this one particular section where you'd get records where you're like, oh, I remember that artist. You know, last month they were on, you know, on the on the billboard on buses and then now their records are here. You know, they'd be like for a pound. Mm. And it all, it really interested me in a really twisted way where, you know, all these artists who get promoted really well for, say, a, a month or two months and suddenly they get, you know, they don't, don't exist anymore or they split up, you know. And I remember for, for me, for a young age, I was like, you know, um, or bands split up because, I don't know, they fall out over money or they fall out over, you know, the, the lead singer getting all the glory or the drummer getting all, whatever, you know, there's the focus on one person. Anyway, we're human beings and the things that disrupt developments and disrupt progress is ego 90% of the time so I was like you know what 
you know, I'm 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 really keen to, to I'm, whatever I'm involved in. I'm in I'm involved in for the long haul. So, well, I need to work out a way that I can navigate ego and it the ego not become a disruptive force mm-hmm. because I've seen it time and time again and throughout history ego destroys wonder it always does right mm. and I remember reading years ago um where you two you know when they were signed earlier on they were like we're a four-piece it doesn't matter who writes the songs we split everything 25 percent, 20 you know everything's equal doesn't matter mm-hmm. if Bono writes the song, um, you know, everyone gets it. And for me, I, I always remember that because they're still together to this day. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, my understanding is it's still pretty much the same, right? Um, and the way you view you two, um, you know, you, you, you view them as this ba- band of four men, right? And of course, everyone knows Bono's the lead singer. And yes, everyone knows his voice. Um, but you know they're still together to this day, and I'm pretty sure it's because they 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 created this understanding really early, really early on, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure as human beings, I'm not saying that everyone should stay the same. We you know we all grow and we have different tastes. Of course, we grow as human beings. But if you've got something that's really special, you should try and maintain it. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. Particularly with when it comes to black music or black culture. Do you know what I mean? You know, there's enough riding on, there's enough complicated, it's it's complicated enough, you Mm -hmm. know, navigating this space as people of colour. You know, so to me, you know, from a really early age, this idea of trying to maintaining, you know, and understanding one's ego and how you can still have an ego, but the ego not be a disruptive force in what you're doing has been really important to me, you know, really important to me. And I was just going to say, I feel like actually that it feels like that kind of hits home, particularly when you talk about the, it just, it just brung up like some of the words or some of the things that you were saying um, when it came to this whole idea, the, the roots are behind why you created, um, cdr and this idea of like removing sort of like these barriers um or these like obstacles whether it be uh the industry um or any sort of like gatekeepers and actually the ego is one of these things and i think actually what you have done is actually helped remove this whether it was conscious or not because when you think about the way people share music these days it doesn't really happen as much in in a public public sphere. It's like it's very much kind of like behind closed doors. Like you might send someone your demos, you might send someone like it's always going to be a very closed circle of people who actually hear things like in the early stages of its development or like someone really close to you. Which is why CDR and those nights were really quite special because, as you said, that like you are kind of challenging what the perception. This perception of finished is or what is fresh or what is new um and it's yeah it's really really nice because like it just made me think about my experience of like artists that i know who i've heard their work from and and in its sort of like development stage or its demo stage before it being completed um yeah and i feel like that's actually really really quite a key thing and 
also what's really interesting is that it, it it's it's done in such a communal but also like safe way yeah you have you'll mm. be able you're able to share this with other people and actually i think that can be quite powerful agreed i mean i think that uh, I, you're completely right and i'm i'm glad you've identified these traits of, of cdr you know because i think you know um before the great thing about cdr is that it existed in a physical space before the internet right and for a long time that was a special thing because as i said earlier this window of sound this playlist only exists in that place and whoever was there experienced it right you know whether it's on at the embassy or whether it was at the bridge and tunnel that we were there for a while or whether we're plastic people which is obviously where we stayed until it closed in 2012 and for me it was it's it's the beautiful thing about it is that a lot of the time for artists and producers you know the fact that you're sharing something that you're not ready to you know a lot of people when you're developing music sharing it with people is the last thing you want to do because mm. you're going to immediately say well that's not right it's still working on this still working on this you know and there's a space for that of course there's a space for sharing something when it's not ready of course but equally there's a space for sharing things when they're not, it's not ready because there's a lot there's lots that comes from the emancipation of that you know just from 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 letting go of perceptions of it's not right yet. Do you know what I mean? You know, and and the the really powerful thing about CDR, apart from this fact that it it kind of dis- demystifies what finished means, mm-hmm. um, um, but it also allows uh, someone who's working on music to hear the music in this context, right, where the sound system is top notch, with people who are a mix of people who you don't know and also know, you know. And the fact that the space isn't about judgment, it's about listening, you know? It's about listening and understanding. And, um, and, and it's, a diff- it's, it's a different consciousness, you know? And most, pe- you know, most of the time, if you're playing something that you're, you know, you're not comfortable with, because for whatever reason, you end up um, working through that at a CDR session because all your perceptions and insecurities are irrelevant. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You know, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, your whatever, um, uh, um, you know, whatever feelings you have about being judged or the feelings you have about, oh, people are going to laugh about my baseline or, you know, they're going to notice that in the second verse, you know, the, that sentence is out of, key you know or out of flat or whatever those things are just in your head and they could be right right but that's not the point the point is is that you're listening to music your music on the great sound system and then some you know and and the the release of that both in terms of your emotions and your feelings about your music but also the other listeners in the space who also are privy to that world, it's an amazing experience. And most of the time, it's quite the opposite what happens. People will inquire, you know, there'll be inquiries about what they've heard or the technical detail or, you know, your approach to the vocal or whatever. And you can can have a conversation about the work, right? 
which in turns would informs where you go next. So CDR becomes this listening experience becomes a tool for the development of your music, you know, rather than being this hindrance because it's been shared in public. Yeah, of course, totally. Um, yeah, and I think it's amazing. I think that whilst obviously, as you say, this with technology having developed and then some over the time that CDR has been about and obviously it had much more of a place when it was physical and that was like the only kind of access you had to that type of um, sharing um, because it was like the the advent of all these forms of like um, early music sharing in technology like outside of the physical format of like vinyl and dubplex etc and cassettes um, it still has a place like there is there is something that can be gained from like having being able I mean it, basically what I'm saying is that it, it, you can't take away that the the role that it plays um, by actually putting people in a space together and actually sharing that experience of I guess like as you say emancipating your music and like kind of releasing it into into a wider public space um, I just wanted to also talk about because you you mentioned being a black professional in the industry like I really wanted to kind of talk to you about your experience um, when it comes to I guess reconciling the black identity in the music industry um, in your I guess like in your um, what I want to know is that in your time that you've been working would you say that there is a there's a bit of a performance or a perception of blackness in the street because there have obviously been a lot of conversations recently um in in recent years and obviously like in the last year um, particularly about blackness and music and how much music the music industry has gained from black music and mm. the whole changing of the the term of urban music to black music there's there's so much that has kind of happened and obviously i just wanted to know what your experiences were of operating as a black man in the industry sure um lots lots to pack in there <laughs> um, let's, let's try let's try yeah. and like yeah yeah what, of course what would be yeah, your top, yeah your top, of course yeah. yeah sure um you know it's a um so first and foremost um I've grown up always knowing I was le not, not less than as in less than as a human being, but I was always a minority, I should say, mm -hmm. not less than, a mon minority, whether it was in primary school, being one of eight black kids, um, or being in secondary school, one of maybe 20 black kids in mm -hmm. a school of 600 um, you know, whether it's, I've always been a minority, right? Mm -hmm. And let's put the ra race thing to, to one side, as in, you know, racial stuff to one side. That, you know, I grew up in the 80s, 90s, you know, I've grown up through National Front and all that stuff and navigating that. Let's park that to, for one side. So at a young age, I've always known I'm a minority. And between my parents, saying to me, you always have to be better than the white kids. You always have to work twice as hard. That was something that I grew up with, 
not on the you know regularly right and a lot of you know a lot of kids in my generation you know your parents that's what you know that was drummed into at a young age you have to work twice as hard this country's not you know it was always that right so I've always known that I'm a minority and I've always known I've had to work twice as hard you know and this became clear in my teenage years um, and um, and for me, the way I've solved that from a young age is to be independent, right? You know, so mm-hmm. taking ownership as much as I can of my destiny, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's me, um, you know, you know, buying records, go, you know, going to West End myself and developing my record collection at a young age, or whether it's at university setting up my club night, Destination X, on my own, obviously with my mates, Robert and Oki, but it was my vision. You know, I, I will talk the, to the, to the you know, I will physically go to the club and negotiate the terms. I will physically book people myself. I'll physically do the flyers myself, at least at the beginning. No one's stopping me. I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it. I've always been that kind of person. Knowledge is power. That's me from the mm-hmm. get-go. Yeah. So, so to this day, right, you know, um, and I think where I've not allowed prejudice, I've not allowed, um, you know, um, oppression to, 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 um, hinder my focus. Of course, there's been times when it's been challenging and there's been times when I've, you know, um, had to handle racial incidents, whether that's in a workplace or whether that's in a, a, a club environment. You know, I've had, I've had all those things, you know, a lot of things, which I won't talk about now, but what I will say is that, you know, um, I've chosen to focus on focusing, right? You know, just mm-hmm. focusing yeah. and empowering myself as much as I can, finding like-minded people around me identifying like-minded people um and really celebrating that right so um and also for me what's been really interesting is that i've been able to differentiate between you know black enterprise you know and mainstream enterprise and what i mean by that is you know i've really always had a lot of love for those aunties or uncles who would go to nigeria and buy crayfish or okra or stockfish, you know, from the markets in the village and bring it back in suitcases mm-hmm. and open it up on a Sunday and open a stink out the house. Do you know what I mean? But, yeah. You know, and that's entrepreneurship yeah. day one, right? That's community entrepreneurship. It may not have the bells and whistles of a brand, you know, with a logo and a van, but that's entrepreneurship. And what's beautiful about that entrepreneurship is that it's for the community. Hmm. You know, it's saying that we are providing a service to our people. We need these foodstuffs because it's not readily available in local supermarkets or it's really expensive. So we're going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of the time they'll make they'll either give it away or sell it at cost. Right. It wasn't about making a, you know, a huge buck. It was serving the community. And I've really, really been inspired by this, whether it's uncles and aunties with their cases of good food goods 
or whether it's the local barber in your neighborhood where you know you're cutting afro hair and there's a culture around that and there's an enterprise to that again it's not about making a barber incorporated and and making a multinational empire it's about the one or the two in your ends serving the people and Mm. that's it Mm -hmm. nice and simple Mm. people make a living all good so I've really taken inspiration from these kind of black enterprise that exist for the community, right? Um, and you can extend that into record labels like Greensleeves in the early days. You know, a lot of these kind of reggae labels or soul records, soul record labels or early hip hop record labels. You know, a lot of those labels were created because there wasn't a place for that music on mainstream um, companies. They weren't interested in that music. So you set up these labels to to channel those artists and producers, but then also to serve a community, whether it's whatever the genre is, whether it's soul, reggae, dub, lovers rock, whatever it is, right? Yeah. So to me, it's it's been really important seeing that and and knowing that, you know, of course, one wants to uh, an organisation to grow. You want to obviously be able to expand, you know, to, to, to sustain, to, to be sustainable. But there's different ways of being sustainable, right? You know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't always have to be grandiose. There's different, yeah. there's different forms of grandiose, right? And if you focus on sustainability and focus on maintaining your mission as your organisation or your business, you know, and you know, everyone, you know, each to their own in terms of what, uh, what people want, whatever profit means to there's different forms of profit right a different form of wealth um and i'm not excluding any time wealth for people but i think for me personally cultural wealth and you know maintaining wealth within a community you know is 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 priority has always been priority in, in whatever i do yeah and it's um sorry i just uh, didn't mean to cut you cut in there but um it was yeah just very interesting because it was something as you were speaking and something that I wanted, I wanted to, to talk to you or sorry, ask you about, um, because you've done so much over your career is this like this idea of success and what they means, but I think you've kind of answered it to be honest. I mean, like, it's really interesting because for me, I would have, I would have, um, not guessed, but my, my viewpoint would have been that because you've done so much and a lot of your work, coming from a position of being the creator um with Attica specifically and having this journey with them and then the label um and then going to do CDR and and you're um an educator as well you teach um and you 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 also speak as well and impart your knowledge I think it's like correct me if I'm wrong but it feels like you're you're very much about sharing and empowering other people. That's very much what your deal is. Um, so the, yeah, it was it was so interesting that you kind of had this analogy of um, bringing back foods and and selling them, or just providing a service um, from for the community in in another space this idea of like it all kind of really ties in together like being independent and doing your thing for for your people 
um, yeah, I really like that. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it, uh, it's, I guess for me, I've always, not always, but, you know, I've, I've had a broad view about these things, you know, mm. for, for a long time in my life, you know, just, you know, asking myself how, you know, anything from how artists become successful for a while and then not, you know, how scenes are so powerful at the beginning, then they get destroyed, you know, or how genres evolve or, you know, how things, ev- why can't, you know, what, what's the key to keeping things sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the key to maintaining, you know, and that's always something that's really puzzled me for, for you know, for a lot of my, a lot of my years. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I live, I'm, I live for, not live for, but I'm in the business of empowerment and independence and helping human beings, you know, create and live to their best potential mm-hmm. and enabling friction-free access to knowledge and friction-free access to development, you know. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, particularly because of the the lens of music that I'm interested in, and the lens of music that I'm interested in pursuing, um, I believe that's the that's the that's the the best approach for for me. You know, um, it's interesting because, you know, f- from being part of Attica was has been and continues to be an amazing experience in terms of the the, the period of time that we were really productive and the period of time in history um but one could argue that you know it would have been fantastic to have had a hit record do you know what i mean or live Mm. off the you know live off a licensing deal or live off the fruits of um you know third party exploitation that would would have been wonderful and maybe still possible you know that's one way that you know some many of my peers have sustained themselves you know what i mean and that has a particular pathway or or if you become really successful as a touring DJ or whatever it is, do you know what I mean? Everyone's got um, ways of sustaining themselves, right? But for every fantastic licensing, you know, opportunity or or celebrated notoriety DJ career, there's going to be some kind of thing that has to offset that, right? You know, and and I think for me, it's 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 been trying to work out a a, a balance. You know, it hasn't always been easy, you know. I can definitely say with CDR, you know, CDR has been fantastic, and it's it's been it's maintained this this um, thinking for twenty years because I've been very stalwart and stubborn about what what the space needs to be, come rain or shine, you know, come you know, op- opportunities that could have steered it in a particular di- direction for personal gain or for, for profit. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I've chosen not to take those paths purely and simply because I've had the bandwidth to see where those kind of paths can lead. Do you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Um, and, um, and I'm not saying I've got all the answers. I'm not saying I've got all the solutions. But what I can say is that, you know, the vision for CDR 
and also the vision for how I live my life as a as a as an educator, as a as a as a as a music maker, as a producer, is that you know particularly with the lens of music that I'm interested in and the the for me you know it's all about being um creating a space where people feel welcome and feel that they can live to their potential you know um um and i believe the more you create spaces for this and the more you can demonstrate its worth the, the the potentially this way of thinking can offset any um environments where authentic you know where you can't be authentic or where the realms of profit or the realms of you know um you know that perspective is is less of a narrative if the, if that makes sense yeah totally totally yeah definitely um i just wanted to touch um on the the topic of mental health as well um how much of an impact has mental health had on your career um or not yeah but is it something that you've had challenges with at all in the past that's a great question i'm glad you've asked that um because it's only something that um i've really thought about recently um Mm -hmm. well in terms of my own personal mental health yeah i've for, for for years for years i've often thought about um, why the industry um, doesn't support, won't support artists on their journey. And what I mean by that is, from my own experience, I talked to you a little bit about one day we were signed to Sony and everything's hunky-dory. Mm-hmm. And then a while later, it's the opposite like tumbleweed (laughs) Mm -hmm. tumbleweed now as a human being you have to process that right you know and i know full well there are lots of artists who have not been able to handle that you know that the, the transition from one day you've got lots of attention lots of notoriety and for whatever reason that notoriety doesn't get converted into gain whatever the gain is whether it's financial gain whether it's you know whatever gain and it and that artist or bat and they have to deal with that Mm. and a lot of artists go into depression you know become it affects their mental health because they haven't had the support or advice or the insight into how to handle the traject the industry trajectory right mm-hmm. how to handle you know being one day you're in your bedroom making music on your own terms playing it to your mates the next minute everyone's talking about you and then you're you know you're the center of attention and then sometime later you're not right mm-hmm. so you have to deal with and people deal with that in different ways right so i really believe there needs to be something in place to support that you know, because I, I I used to say for a while that I think we've lost, well, two reasons. I think we've lost, a, um, a, um, potentially we've lost fantastic artists and producers because of this. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people who, 
you know, and as you know, someone who's creative is this complex journey of personal self-discovery, personal ambition, you know, dealing with life, this kind of complex tapestry of stuff when you're making work and you're sharing it with the world, right? I'm not saying it all has to be rosy, but what I'm saying is in a part of that tapestry, there needs to be some education around the outcomes of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm, Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, because a lot of the time, if your record doesn't do well, whatever well means, right, or you don't reach a particular goal, you know, you, the first thing you're going to do is internalise it. I'm not good enough. I'm rubbish. You know, it didn't work, you know, there's, you know, unless you've got people around you or you've got the what you can understand why it didn't perform. Do you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And even if even if it didn't perform for because it was I don't know, what for whatever reason, there should be a way of us as human beings learning how to process disappointment. Completely. Yeah. You know, people always like react to things in different ways, as you say. Like Yeah. I feel like for you, maybe I don't know whether you felt this. Um I'm sure you would have and to some degree, but it felt like you were able to channel that disappointment in in some shape or form, but not everyone can do that, as you say. Well, yeah, exactly. So, so I think for me, you know, a real turning point was this idea, you know, when we got dropped by Sony. And, you know, um, for sure, I was down for a while, for sure. Particularly because up until that point, you know, we were we were doing well as in you know we were committed to the records that we're making we'd had notoriety of course um but this particular group of people in this industry in this building decided the opposite to that right mm. so so a, 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 you know i you know without show of a doubt i had a period of time where I felt disappointed and felt I, you know, not agreed with them, but surely they're saying something right because they dropped us. But that was short lived. You know, I made the decision to not let that rule me. I evaluated my, you know, I evaluated myself as a human being. You know, am I am I committed to what I'm what I'm, what, what you know, the music I make or the music I create? Um, you know, I really evaluated what my capability, not just as a human being but also as a as a as a as a band member yeah and although we didn't go on to make another record you know our ability manifested itself in different ways mine manifested itself in creating cdr um charlie manifested itself in running rundem crew do you know what i mean yeah so so i think that you know there's a defiance that's really important as this you know i think the thing to to, to to learn from setbacks or disappointments or from, you know, yeah, from disappointment is to evaluate, you know, learn from it, you know, try not take it personally, you know, and move forward. Because throughout history, particularly with black music, particularly with black enterprise, you know, there's countless examples of people who have been, you know, um, you know, underestimated, put down, you know, um, you know, throughout history. And it's that determination that has brought through wonderful bodies of work or wonderful enterprise, you know. So that's yeah. the thing to really remember. And did you, did you feel at the time as well, like in the wake of the disappointment that you had peers you could talk to about this or 
or conversely is there do you feel like there are people who you're able to talk about this sort of thing now who kind of come across not necessarily the same sort of disappointment but like who kind of go through who are going through something um and who need that extra support that's a really good question um i'd say that you know at the times now yeah you know 2021 for sure Mm -hmm. you know i think that you know there are people in my life who i can confide with um you know people confide with me you know um you know the, the good thing about talking about mental health and you know the mental side of being creative you know is something that people talk a, a, a lot more it's a, a lot more um it's a lot more part of people's vocabulary nowadays mm-hmm. right yeah. and people and if you've lived through the creative process whatever it is music pottery you know graphic design whatever it is we 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 you you learn what these peaks and troughs are right and you know if you're able to share them with your peers you know um you know i think it becomes less taboo and um it it's really important to have to be able to have people around you who you can share these feelings um and perspectives with because it will really make it um it it helps push through you know it helps and and also it's it's little things it could be as simple as being able to share how you feel or experience with someone close to you and someone just listening in the first instance right the mm-hmm. fact is out of your body in the world is super powerful rather than cooping up in yourself you know yeah. i'll say you know in the earlier part of my career i think again for me i was broadsided enough to 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 take empowerment from artists who were dropped and then rose again or artists who were dropped and then did something else you know um you know and 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 being able to remind myself that this particular institution who rejected me more for them do you know what i mean more yeah. for them yeah. you know and that's the way to kind of look at these things i think the great thing about where we are in the world is that there's different measures of success there's different ways of growing and evolving as uh, as an enterprise and i think the sooner you know one realizes that you know then the levels of not expectations but you know you're on this journey right and don't get me wrong there are people who want particular you know want high levels of notoriety and the fruits of that that's fine you know i want that to a certain extent right Mm. you know um but what i will not do is compromise my integrity to get there you know and i think that um you know um, the great thing about where we are in the world, particularly with what's happened with COVID and what's happened, you know, post George Floyd, um, you know, it almost like a lot of what was unsaid or um, not explored or um, did lacked of vocabulary, uh, a, um, a public arena to talk about these things without... Um, uh you know um like fear uh, of judgment yes yeah yeah that's been blown out of the water mm. and that is really really exciting you know yeah. and 
And I think that um, moving forward in the same in the same way that race has the conversation has transformed in many respects, regressed in others when it comes to recent government reports. That's another conversation. Um, you'd like to think the conversation around mental health is much more fruitful nowadays. You know, people can really talk about their mental... Uh, people are a lot more conscious of mental health than they ever were in history. And that is really positive. Hmm. There's still a lot of work to be done, of course. But the fact that um, it's not a taboo subject anymore and you can talk about depression or anxiety or, you know, you know other forms of, you know, mental health in a sentence and not be judged quite the opposite it's a conversation that can build and grow into support in this day and age is really powerful yeah completely i i completely agree i think that the the conversation has has moved on leaps and bounds as as it needs to as you say there's definitely more work that needs to be done but it's um i think that there have been like drastic drastic improvements um and i guess this is testament to that as well um we are just about actually finished so i just wanted to ask you one last question just about what you've got coming up for cdr i say you as if i'm not part of cdr but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um what uh what is there to look forward to anything that you can share at the moment sure um so so before i answer that question um, I need to just say that um, part of my growth and development as a human being in this space is the transition from, well, the evolution, I should say, from one to many. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was in a band, as you know, Attica Blues, a trio, and we had, you know, band members. That was a group of people, right? And then um, CDR... Um, I started it by worked with, you know, a good friend, Gavin Alexander, for a long time. Um, and, you know, I've always had, you know, this vision for this concept to be much bigger than one person, right? Mm -hmm. And, but at, at times, it was just me, you know, when it had to be lean and mean, um, in the days of, you know, when it had to be lean and mean. <laughs> And I was doing everything myself, right? Because I had to be lean and mean. Um, but what's been interesting is that what got me into everything that I do is my pursuit of my love for music and my love for bringing people together and my love for learning, right? You know, whatever that is. And I kind of, you know, I didn't come into this particularly with CDR, I didn't come into it thinking, right, I've got a startup now and this startup is going to be a unicorn, da, da, da. you know, I didn't come as a business person. Yeah. I didn't come with it, that, you know, and most creative people have to learn how to transform your, not identity, but you need to evolve as someone who is a craftsperson, as a producer, someone who makes work, to then articulate that work into an organisational framework, you know, and that, you know, that journey for a lot of people, it, it, that journey is different for different kinds of people, you know. And I know for me, it was an organic process. It began with, you know, my idea for this event, this thing that then, you know, had Gavin on board, 
and then we had other people on board who became part of the organization and seeing where it goes you know and that's one way of growing as an organization but either way you know something that I had to learn earlier on is uh, early on is that you know to grow an organization to go from something that's a cultural phenomenon into an organ into a, 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 a structure right you know if you've got this creative idea it needs an infrastructure so understanding how to make that work is something that has to be learned along the way however you do it you know and knowing that something becomes you know it needs to get out of your brain mm-hmm. into the world and it needs to be understood by other people you know um and that's a really important thing to 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 get to to navigate because i know for me particularly in the last few years you know um there's been it's been really exciting to for you know for CDR to be in existence for this long, you know, it's, it's 20 years next year, 2022. And in that time, there's been a huge change in, you know, in the music industry, both in terms of, you know, genres, distribution, all manner of things. We all know that, right? But to me, what's been really beautiful, the, the main the, the main seed of CDR has been constant throughout. And that's obviously through my doing, but it wouldn't be possible without the people who have been part of CDR's growth and evolution, you know, mm-hmm. and also for me to understand that as a human being, um, and also understanding that, you know, um, you know, to build an idea on, upon an idea takes people and takes, pe- you know, takes like-minded people and people who also share the same kind of vision, you know, for, for the, for the, for the project. So, so, so to me, you know, as we enter, you know, this, you know, phase of CDR, which is about growth and about expanding, you know, having a robust program, you know, building on the years that CDR has been around, um, but really maintaining its values and, and thinking and mindset, but really bringing that to more people and that mindset being articulated in different kinds of ways, whether it's in a school setting or whether it's in a an academic setting or whether it's it's in the in a in the in the in the uh whether it's a label setting or whether it's in a partnership with a like-minded organization you know these these are really interesting perspectives that will we're just continuing to grow and, and expand and as you know you know it's been a really interesting ride the last you know few years and seeing how that's manifested itself particularly in times of trauma particularly in these times of covid and how that's affected us as an organization who prides itself on creating physical experiences um and um you know um the, the future is really exciting just really taking cdr's thinking and approach to community and approach to music creation and sharing you know, to, to, to more people. Great. Um, yeah, that's, uh, really exciting. I can, I can concur and can confirm that, that, uh, there are lots of, uh, really great things to come. Um, yeah, thank you so much for talking today. 
Um, You're welcome. I wish Thank you, you very much. Longer. <laughs> I feel like there's uh, so much, so much more we could talk about, but um, alas, time permits. Um, but until next time, um, have a great rest of your day and hopefully speak to you soon. Indeed. Thank you very much for asking me and, and thank you very much for this opportunity to share yeah, my perspective on these things. I'm I'm usually on the other side, right? <laughs> yeah. So 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 it's been really it's been really good to be to be, and also it's been great to be able to reflect on you know what I've been doing all these years because I haven't really done that. You know, I've just been psh, psh, forward, 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 onward, forward, forward, onward. You know, it's always so. it's always important and always good to look back. Indeed. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Andrew Mensah and Tony Wachiku. We'll have a new episode for you next week. Until then, our full archive is available for you to take in. And if you find something you love, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts as it helps get our stories to more ears.